Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've reached an age where I spent the weekend doing DIY and enjoyed it. I love a bit DIY, mate. You're that teeny weeny bit older than me, so I'm getting there. I fixed my boiler. That's not even my fact. I fixed my boiler. But a YouTube tutorial was fine. I built a wall. <laughs> Wowzers. I know. Gem, what? What did you do? <laughs> what DIY was? Yeah. I, I looked at the sealant around the top of my shower and thought, probably going to have to do something about that, but I don't know what. So I thought about DIY, but did not do any. See, she's that bit younger. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and it's been a few weeks, so I'm about ready for another march. <laughs> Send me your causes. And I'm Jen Offord, and I resent the people who play those pianos at King's Cross Station slash Stratford Westfield slash Latitude Festival. I can't believe that I, uh, as a joyless person, generally am about to say this, but what is wrong with you, Jen? Yeah. Do you know what? I was walking through King's Cross yesterday, and I thought, oh, piss off and go and validate yourself on social media like I, everyone else. I walked through King's Cross today. They were playing We Are The Champions by Queen. It was Everyone oh, was enjoying it. it. I can't bear it. It's so unnecessary. Later on, we're joined by the corking talent that is musical comedian and impressionist Jess Robinson and another very special guest. Ooh. We chat to Natasha Devon, campaigner, author and presenter of the new Channel 4 show The Naked Beach about the link between body image and mental health. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm chatting WWE and indeed WrestleMania. And in Don Levy Does Dystopia, we're watching Gattaca. Ernest Faces. Mm, Ernest Faces. Ernest Borgnine. (laughs) (laughs) But first, mum porn, gory rips and cat chat. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Now. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Unlock! Imagine if you can, a different kind of Theresa May. Uh No, not the dancing one. Rather a more conversational... Convivial and relaxed, Theresa May. <laughs> I'm asking a lot, I know. As was whoever decided that was the best angle to aim for when filming Teabag's recent well cash address to the nation. Looking for all the world like Rowley Burke in QC, an effect amplified by the shaky reportage-style camera work, the Maybot 2.0, not a bot, chuckles as she explains that over the last few days, people have been asking her, what on earth is happening with Brexit? Oh, over the last few days, Theresa? Um, sure, sure. What else does she say? Well, it's the same old, same old, really. The people voted to Brexit, so Parliament needs to Brexit and therefore hope to find a way to Brexit, so everyone's talking about how to Brexit. Chuckle, chuckle. Perhaps if Teabag had indeed been very, very drunk at the time, she triggered Article 50 on the back of a non-binding referendum result without a sodding clue as to how to implement actually leaving the EU, more of this sea of shit where tits deep in would make sense. In said video, Theresa May also defended her decision to hold talks with Labour Party representatives about Brexit after she was criticised by some of her own party for doing so. Bearing in mind the sizeable contingent within her own party of people who appear to have lost their damn minds, I'm not sure I'd have bothered as we hurtle towards the abyss of a no-deal Brexit. This comes as Commons leader Andrea Leadsom said no deal would be a better option than cancelling Brexit altogether. Continuing to attempt to scaremonger the public into 
putting pressure on politicians to back her shitty deal, Teabag said the possibility of delivering Brexit was slipping through our fingers, which seems even less likely now she's brought Big Jezza C into the mix, the only person who seems to want this clusterfuck to go ahead as much as she does, other than bacon-faced Marc Francois. If last week's Newport West by-election disproved predictions that a move to supporting a people's vote would lead to the untimely demise of Labour, is it also untrue that not leaving Europe could tear the Tory party asunder? It's the hope that kills you, right? While much fuss was made of the departures of yet more white men you've never heard of from May's cabinet, the event that better demonstrates the deep cracks appearing in the party's foundations is the departure of Nick Bowles. Don't go, Nick! (laughs) Conservative backbencher, gay man and survivor of a brain tumour, who resigned the whip with the words, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm done, you bunch of stubborn cunts. (laughs) When you contrast this, which I've got to say I actually found oddly moving when I saw it on live TV, with the sudden media proliferation of ERG mouthpiece, man who thinks he's Jesus and sentient pork-scratching Mark Francois... You've got to say, the death of the Tory party can't come soon enough. A Brexit, a Broxit, we all fall down. No, I've not got a cold. That's the title of Anish Kapoor's Brexit artwork created for Guardian readers, illustrating the plague that Leave or Remain has landed on both houses. Once you've got over a Broxit, spoiler, I cannot, there's still a phenomenal amount to enjoy. If you haven't seen the artwork, and I really do urge you to seek it out because Christ knows we could all do with a laugh, Kapoor has depicted a deep gash down the map of the UK. It is disturbingly anatomical. A gory volcano stretching from Glasgow to the south coast. Uh, Neither Northern Ireland or the Republic are affected at all, which, to be honest, must be a massive relief for them. Apart from giving it a title, Kapoor has said he does not wish to make any further comment about the piece, preferring to let it speak for itself. Luckily, art critic Jonathan Jones has stepped in where Kapoor feared to tread, referring to it as a black hole of melancholy, <laughs> which, coincidentally, is what I call my downstairs. Oh. <laughs> Made me feel a bit sick. Yeah. I really didn't like looking it's at really it. It's really fleshy. <laughs> the BBC faced a backlash, yes, another one, last week after it issued staff with a warning about airing political views via social media. The warning followed a particularly contentious section on the BBC's Question Time programme in which an audience member asked, Is it morally right that five-year-old children learn about LGBTQ plus issues in school? You might rightly ask, as many members of the corporation staff also did, is it morally right to ask that question in this day and age, or indeed any? Is the answer no? Yes, the answer is no. Well done, Mickey. An email was subsequently sent to BBC staff by Director of News, Fran Unsworth, which told them they may face appropriate action if rules about expressing strong political views on social media were breached. In the email, Unsworth wrote, We all have personal views, but it is part of our role with the BBC to keep those views private. Our editorial guidelines say BBC staff must not advocate any particular position on a matter of public policy, political or industrial controversy, or any other controversial subject. We are living in a period of highly polarised opinions on a range of subjects and the BBC frequently faces criticism for the way we report and analyse events, with our impartiality called into question. Now, a cursory glance at the Twitter feeds of, say, Andrew Mad Catwoman Neil, and in the interest of balance, Match the Day presenter Gary Lineker, indicates that these rules are not universal. No. 
Last week, Brunei brought in a barbaric new law punishing gay sex and adultery with death by stoning. This makes Brunei the first country in East or Southeast Asia to have a Sharia penal code at the national level. It's 2019, everyone. The United Nations has condemned the cruel and inhumane laws, as have the EU, Australia and others, while well-known figures, including George Clooney and Elton John, have called for a boycott of luxury hotels owned by Brunei. Appallingly, Theresa May et al. have remained pretty much silent on the subject, with Foreign Office Minister Mark Field saying, The Sultan of Brunei has been a great friend of this country over many years. He has, I think, become a little more devout as he has got older which is one reason why the Sharia Code, based, of course, on the Saudi Arabian Sharia Code, has been put in place. I mean, come on, Mark, that's lacking, to say the very least. Brunei is not alone. Several mostly Middle Eastern countries, such as Saudi Arabia, also adhere to Sharia law. The difference is Brunei is part of the Commonwealth, so Britain needs to step the fuck up and get involved. Oh, and in case you were wondering, 35 out of the 58 member states of the Commonwealth criminalise LGBT plus people. It's 2019, everyone. In one of the funniest and weirdest stories of my life, I've shaken hands with um, with his son, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. That was weird. That was weird. That was weird. Was that Stephanie Beecham's pal? Yeah. Yeah. He looked like he'd been. He looked like um, Selfridges had been sick on him. Uh, um, <laughs> meanwhile, on the stage, I was wearing a Repeal the Eight T-shirt. <laughs> The largest ever mainstream test for online age verification took place last week after digital age gates were placed on an adult film created as part of a Channel 4 documentary. The film, I Want 4 Play, as in the number 4 play, see what they did there, was directed by five mothers as part of the documentary Mums Make Porn, aimed at highlighting concerns about the negative impacts easy access to pornography has on the mental health of children. After the final episode, the film was made available, but required users to authenticate their age as over 18, as will be mandatory after the implementation of the Digital Economy Act later this year. Alistair Graham, CEO of age verification software provider AgeChecked, said the exercise showed the clear preparedness to offer robust, secure age verification procedures, and also that it highlights that customers are willing to participate in the process. Average Channel 4 documentary watcher demographic, anyone? Do you think that the people logging on to watch this film after this documentary on Channel 4 are a representative sample of the average porn user? I wouldn't have thought so. No. I don't think the average porn user wants foreplay, do they? (laughs) (laughs) Ever wondered if your cat can understand you? Yes, like on an hourly basis. Well, scientists in Japan have recently discovered that they sort of can. Yes, I knew it. In that they can differentiate between their name and other words. That's about Chris Grayling level of understanding (laughs) if you're looking for a frame of reference. Researchers found that cats showed definite signs of recognition when they heard their name being called, suggesting some level of understanding of words. They also found that cats rarely responded (laughs) to their name, suggesting that they still give no fucks. This is all adding up. I'm actually convinced my cats can understand a lot more than their name, because I'm pretty sure... Peggy goes over to Joan and says, Did you hear that? She's overdrawn. You chew the corner off a month's worth of food packets and I'll lick my bum until it bleeds. <laughs> oh, they love you, really. Yeah, but they always know when I'm poor. A quick visit to the monarchy where, according to the Daily Mail, Meghan Markle has caused, and prepare for an onslaught of bold font, capital letters, outrage with an astonishing snubbing of the Queen's doctors. 
What now? Turns out Megan wants to choose her own birth plan, which is bold font, capital letters. Fair enough. Next. Anybody want a bit of good news? Yes, please. Well, to Scotland. Please don't leave us. Don't go. Where the routine immunisation of girls with the HPV vaccine has led to a, quote, dramatic drop in cervical disease later in life. And by dramatic drop, I mean researchers are saying the vaccine has nearly wiped out cases of cervical precancer in young women since the immunisation programme began a decade ago. I mean, shit. That's amazing. Mm. And given the current state of public discourse on immunisation, that's got to be a big win for science and for women. It follows the less great news that last month, Ireland's leading HPV vaccine campaigner Lauren Brennan had died in Limerick aged 26. Her campaign led to a surge of almost 20% in the number of young women taking the HPV vaccine in the Republic, which is an incredible achievement, whichever way you look at it. It absolutely is. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we head to a court of law and still find things as horrifically, uh, apologies for the technical jargon, sexist as fuck. A man whose wife has severe learning difficulties appeared in front of the Court of Protection after council officials raised concerns that his wife might no longer be able to consent to sex because of her mental health. In other words, the couple may no longer be able to legally have sex. The husband in question offered to give an undertaking not to have sex with his wife of 20 years because it seems he doesn't want to risk raping her. Residing judge Mr Justice Hayden, however, wasn't convinced, saying, I think he is entitled to have it properly argued. I cannot think of any more obviously fundamental human right than the right of a man to have sex with his wife. Me either. Yeah, just just let that settle. Mm. Clearly Hayden's never heard of food, water, shelter, or indeed the fundamental human right not to have sex with someone if you don't want to. That someone in a powerful and trusted position could refer to sex with his wife as the fundamental human right of a man seems the perfect illustration of institutionalised sexism and bias against women. Sex isn't a human right. Saying no is. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team, at Standard Issue UK, or individually on at Inspiragen, at that Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. Hello, we are joined by none other than Cheryl Cole. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks so much for coming in. It's an absolute pleasure. What have you been up to? Um, I've finished The Greatest Dancer, and now I'm just sort of being a mum. Are you enjoying it? Not really, no. Oh, what would you rather be doing? Um, getting trashed down the pub, really. <laughs> Eating pork scratchings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're actually joined by musical comedian and impressionist Jess Robinson. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Jess. There she is. There she is. That was amazing. Thanks. Hi. No more voices. <laughs> Who would you like? That's literally all I've written down. <laughs> How did you start doing impressions? I started by doing uh, impressions of my mum, because she speaks like that. Although she says, I don't sound like that, but she does. Um, because she was a teacher at my school, and that was the most uncool thing, obviously. So I had to be the first one to take the piss before she could. Where is she from? 
Uh, just North London. Okay. I know, I make her sound a bit northern, don't I? Yeah. She's not. She's just a North, North London Jewish lady. <laughs> and then, yeah, that just escalated into me doing impressions of teachers. And then I was a jobbing actor. And I found out that there was an audition for Little Voice coming up. Which is, you know, the film with yeah. Jane Horrocks. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I lied and said, oh, I'm brilliant at impressions. Can I audition, please? And they said, yeah, it's in 10 days. And I had 10 days to learn how to do, like, Judy Garland doing somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> and uh, Marilyn Monroe doing, I want to be loved by you. And There's a bit uh, of Shirley Bassey in there as well. Goldfinger. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready with all the prompts. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. And I managed to do it. I got the part. And then... That sort of started me being a wanker. Are we allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That's good because it yeah. pops out of my mouth all the time. <laughs> we all have that problem. Though. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you go about honing a new voice when there's someone that you want to do an impression of? I watch a lot of YouTube. So I will watch a person and then copy it and then record myself and then compare the two. Or I'll just do it to my mum and she'll either go, oh, that's good, Jesse. Brian, Brian, who's Jesse doing? That's my dad. And he's always like, I don't know, I don't watch the telly. So that's really helpful. Or she'll say, oh, no, I think you need to make it a bit more nasal or something like that. And then <laughs> she's very good. She's good. If it gets past mum, it can go in the show. Are impersonation something that literally everyone has the capability to do? Or or is there an art to it that some people will just never get it right? I think it's a bit like singing, because I think anybody can sing. I really do. If, I know You've people... You've not stood outside my shower. Well, this is what people say. But if I bet you, if you had an hour with me, I could teach you how to sing something really, really nicely, and people would be very impressed. And you would feel real good. So I think, yeah, everyone, to different degrees, I reckon everyone's got it in them yeah if somebody is interested <laughs> in doing an impersonation because you know what i would always love to be able to do something yeah because it helps with stories yeah i think it genuinely helps with anecdotes oh, if you absolutely. can actually do the voice yeah what are your tips for doing the voice not necessarily a famous person but just an accent in general so the first thing is pitch have they got a high voice or a low voice? The next thing is tone, I guess. Is it in the nose or is it in the throat like Janet? Uh, <laughs> or um, have they got any speech impediments? Do they have a lisp or a recall? Um, I can, can I teach you how to do an impression? Yes. yes. Love. All right. So you're going to learn how to do Liza Minnelli, okay? Oh, awesome. So, I don't even know what she sounds like. She sounds like Liza. This. <laughs> oh, yes. So the first thing you've got to do, right, you've, you've got to put your voice in the back of your throat like that, like put, Janet. Put your okay. voice in the back put, of your throat. Like that. Uh, I think it's in the back there. Like Mr Bean. Is uh, it in the back of my throat? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. More, yeah. I think I've so. got really bad ears, so I can't actually <laughs> hear myself. Oh, that's true. You've got it, right? Um, so can you now add an American accent at the same oh, time? Oh, my God. Oh, boy. Oh, gee, I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. (laughs) That's pretty good, right? Now, so now you're you're basically doing Judy Garland already. Uh, Uh The next thing you have to do is uh, you've got to add some shibboleth ashes to be lighter. So can you say seven shizzling sausages? Seven shizzling sausages. Yes, this is good. She's really good. Seven shizzling sausages. Seven shizzling sausages. This is excellent, right? And now she's always she's always a little bit out of breath, like she's climbed the stairs. So could you say I've just had both hips replaced? 
just had Bob Hips replied. This is very good. <laughs> this is great. And now, you know, she's very emotional. You, you'll never know if she's going to laugh or cry. So could you say uh, something funny and yet tragic at the same time? Uh, my schnauzer fell down the toilet, but then he drowned. <laughs> My schnauzer fell down the toilet, but then he drowned. <laughs> My schnauzer fell down the toilet, but then he drowned. Yes, that's great. And now, to finish it, you've got to sing, Come to the cabaret! <laughs> <laughs> you have to. You'll get I'm standing out. a base. I'm out. Oh. That's how you do it. Bravo. Jen Manelli. Well, I babe. love Jen Manelli. I can't wait Jeanette to Melly. listen to that. Now, do you know Janelli? My what? next question then is: <laughs> is you, I mean, it's easy enough doing it here now, but when you're on stage, presumably there's a level of physicality that comes with it. Because Liza Manelli walks in that weird way as well, doesn't she? Where like she's really... got big ball sack. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. Jess, where can people find you as, as you? Can they you can... ask her in the style of Liza Manelli? Yes. Yeah. Jess, where can people find you? <laughs> that is amazing. I'd like you to. Re- I'd like you to respond in the style of Mickey. Oh no! Oh, <laughs> oh talk to me a bit more. Um, I don't know what you would like me to say. I, um, I don't know what you would like me to say. I don't think that's very good, is it? <laughs> You're down there. Am I? Yeah. I'm the, the highest of the three highest of, us, of the three of us. I think <laughs> this is really quite it's awful. <laughs> no, it's always. I tell you what, actually, in my shows, at one point, someone said to me, um, "Oh, you should, you should um, impersonate another woman in the audience," and I was like, "Yeah, that sounds a great idea." And every time I did it in previews, it just looked like I was being a bitch. So I don't do it anymore because I, I don't want to offend anyone. It's not yeah. right, is it? Well, thanks for trying it out again today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was um, my fault. Yes, where can people find you? <laughs> they can find me on my website, jessrobinson.co.uk. They can find me on Twitter, at Jessie Robinson. They can find me on Instagram, at Jessinson. And they can find you on tour with no filter until June the 8th. Yes! Come and see me. I'm in Colchester. I'm in... Boom. um, Where else am I? I'm in Bath. I'm in Northampton. I'm in Stafford. I'm in Bromsgrove. I'm at the Soho Theatre for a week. You're all over the place. I'm all over the place. I've got my band Jessington World of Adventures with me. That is amazing. (laughs) One of them is made to wear a cat suit and dress up as Kate Bush. I mean, you must. It's feel good and an antidote to all things manic sound. You can hear much more of our conversation with Jess in this week's Sunday Chops, where she does more voices and also chats to us about the realities of reality TV and other aspects of her time on Britain's Got Talent. Oh yeah, and we'll keep you posted on Jen's transformation into Liza Minnelli. Thanks very much for listening to our voices but we're keen for you to treat your eyes and come look upon our faces our next gig at london's king's place on april the 18th is a pre-easter doozy featuring helen lederer jade adams and the boss herself sarah millican it's also followed by a bank holiday well hello mr wine get in my mouth information and booking details for this and all of our upcoming events can be found at www.standardissuepodcast.com Hello, we are joined by Natasha Devon, campaigner, author and presenter of the new Channel 4 show, The Naked Beach. Natasha, welcome. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. We would like to ask you, first of all, a little bit more about The Naked Beach. What is it? (laughs) It's a very good question. So um, (laughs) there is some research that Dr. Keon West, who uh, is the other uh, co-expert, I guess, in the experiment, he did some research which showed that being surrounded by a diverse range of naked bodies is good for your body image. Which makes total sense, because if you think about it, at the moment, the wallpaper of our world is very kind of airbrushed and perfected. And we know that that has a negative impact. So it's just taking that and turning it on its head, essentially. But we wanted to see if that would be true in a real life situation. So what we did is we created a resort with eight really body positive hosts who are just the most brilliant people ever and sent people with low body image to go and live there in like an immersive experiment. And then we measured their levels of body confidence, life satisfaction um, and happiness before and after the experiment. So is everybody fully nude all of the time? Yes. Apart from because the show's on at eight o'clock, they have body paint on which obscures their bits. Oh, wow. Patterned, patterned bits. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> if their bits are obscured, does mm. that not detract a bit from the point of it? Well, the, it's not a bit-centric show. It's, mm. it's not like naked dating. <laughs> it's not bit-centric, guys. No. Get your head out the gutter, Jen. She's gone straight Sorry. for the genitals. She, she always does. Well, it's got her into <laughs> trouble in the past. <laughs> no, it's, it's more about, um, like, for example, you very rarely see how a body moves. There's so many of the people that came in, because we interviewed them before we sent them to the resort so we could understand a little bit more how their lack of body confidence was holding them back. And so many of them were saying, like, I jiggle. But they confessed it as though it was a hideous secret because they never see anyone else jiggle. So they think they're the only people in the whole world. You know, if you're naked and you stamp your foot, a bit of you will jiggle. Stuff's going to happen. Yeah, they thought they were the only ones. So it's more about, I think, seeing real bodies. And I guess stretch marks, moles, Mm. freckles, everything's so homogenized in Mm. magazines and on television and airbrushed, unless it's like an an artful mole like the Cindy Crawford mole. You just don't see that at all. And it's it's not reflective of how we all are. So true. And I actually, this makes me sound so old, but most of my kind of day-to-day work is in schools and colleges. And when I meet young people, particularly young women out on, on the road, they look really different from each other. And then if they follow me on Instagram, sometimes I look at their feed and they all look the same. Mm. I'm like, how are you doing that? Is it a filter? It's the way they stand as well, I think. But I'm like, that's so boring. It's oh, sad as well. Yeah. It's so sad. You're not even competing with what you see on TV and magazines. You're competing with an unrealistic picture of yourself. Mm. And then you, when you look in the mirror, you're never going to match up to that. It's like the further the, the distance between who you are and who you think you're supposed to be, the more money can be made out of you, but also the more insecure you'll be. And that's why I've always argued that capitalism and mental health are very closely aligned. But that has got me called like a, a bitter feminist hag in the past. Just own it. We're yeah, all bit of feminist um, hags here. <laughs> so are the hosts mm. all sort of, I'm going to say, quote unquote, average body or are they, do um, they look like your average Instagram model or, or not no, so much? It, it, they, so they're very different from each other, which is important. So we've got everybody from people who are very naturally slender right up to uh, plus size. There's people who are 
I don't know what average means anymore, but like, you know, I guess what we would consider average, like yeah. a kind of size 14, 16, but it's a really wide range um, and of colours as well. There's one man who has one arm missing. So we have we have disability represented. Um, the whole point is that it's not homogenised in any way, because if we tried to take you know, the slender beauty paradigm and replace it with a plus size one, that would be just as problematic because people are different from each other. Some scientists are now saying. Mm, really? Yes. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, science. What was the reaction of the guests coming in? Mm. Well, they didn't know what was going to be expected of them. All they knew was that they were going to Greece. And the idea is that... So hang on, so they didn't even know they were going to be naked? Well, they don't have to get naked, that's the thing. Okay. They, they didn't know right. that the, the hosts were going to be naked, so that was the first surprise. It's like, oh, there's a load of naked people here. And I'm they, disappointed if there aren't a load of naked people on my holiday, right. to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're, oh, um, and then, <laughs> um, and then the, the next thing was that throughout the process, they are supposed to become more comfortable with nudity. And we do that in a number of different kind of scientifically proven ways. Uh, but they didn't know that that was going to be the expectation of them. So because I'd really bonded with them because I'd had to interview them all. Is it a slightly gender stereotypical, actually, because there's there's two of us that oversee the experiment. And Dr. Keon's a man and he does the science and I do the feelings. But, you know, it's... <laughs> I enjoyed doing the feelings, but having kind of bonded with them all, that there was this moment when they get to the island where they're like, I hate Natasha. I hate her for making me do this. So, but it was for their own good. See, gender stereotyping again, it's all the woman's fault. Is <laughs> that true? On the gender stereotyping point, were the reactions between the men and women different? Because I could sort of always assumed that men are a bit more like, well, mm. yeah, just kind of like let it all hang out. And women are a bit more like, oh, no, don't look at me. Mm. Is that how it went down or was it completely different? That always was the case historically, that um, men kind of see themselves as more attractive mm. than they are traditionally. <laughs> but I think I think that's changing. When we said we wanted the playing field leveled, this is not what we meant. Because yeah. uh, in my experience, young men in particular are becoming as insecure as women traditionally it's have Instagram, been. Isn't it? I also think it's fitness culture. Yeah. There's um, it, there's a lot of kind of pseudoscience that exists around things like, you know, bulking up and protein and gym. You know, what you heard from the men, generally speaking, tended to relate a lot more to exercise and not feeling confident enough to exercise, even if it was something that they really enjoyed because they didn't feel that they matched up to the other men. A couple of years ago, there was a news story about the massive rise in steroid mm. use in yeah. middle-aged men. Because what they were finding was that middle-aged men were becoming more and more insecure about their appearance because they felt like next to the, the younger generation who mm. are, as you say, more into the kind of exercise culture, really ripped. I just don't want to stand next to this guy. Yeah, and I also think it, it plays into the changing role of what it means to be a man. I was, yeah. I was discussing this with my husband, actually, just at the weekend, because he's older than me. I'm, I'm in my late 30s. He's in his late 40s. And whilst he's very okay with being married to an alpha female, obviously, um, a lot of his friends were like, I don't know how you married her. Like, I like her. But I just I couldn't because they are because they're at an age where they are the man and they're the provider and they have that very traditional role. And it's just the kind of generation below that where it started to change. And I think if you feel like you cannot stake your claim to society by being the earner, you become more decorative, don't you? I don't think that had ever occurred to me before, but that absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? If we're moving towards a more equal society, then the things that 
have been, I don't know, the burden of women, I mm. guess, like looking nice or whatever, yeah. or that's where your value has been placed and that's going to level out as well, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess as well, you get stuff like James Bond. So I was reading that Daniel Craig is doing 12-hour sessions in the gym mm. to make sure he's like looking ripped for the next Bond film. And it's just not achievable for any other human. No. That's his job, but it's not portrayed as yeah. his job when you see it on a screen and you feel like you're falling short. And when you look at, for example, Sean Connery by comparison, you know, just kind of pale and hairy and not particularly defined. Dad bod. Dad bod, exactly. Yeah. Nothing wrong with a bit of dad bod. No, I, I quite like it personally. I mean, that's one of the things we talked about this last time we were in about what I call the, the Kardashian wormhole or the mm. K-hole, if you will. It's <laughs> uh, different, Joe. Uh, and Instagram. And the capitalism point is that, mm. yeah, your insecurity is marketable. Absolutely, yeah. And th- that's their job. Their job is basically to take advantage of and, and exploit your insecurities. Mm. I actually interviewed this really interesting guy a couple of weeks ago called Thomas Curran. He's just had his TED Talk released, which I recommend to everyone. But he's um, an expert in perfectionism. And if I say perfectionism to you, you probably think of someone who tries their best. But in fact, it's somebody who has a a really kind of self-bashing inner monologue, never thinks anything they do is good enough, kind of defines themselves by other people's opinion of them and avoids things they don't think they'll be good at. So I think we're all on a scale of that. And what his research shows is the higher you score on a perfectionism scale, the more vulnerable you are to poor mental health. And his theory is that because we're born into this culture, which tells us pretty much from birth that we are not good enough and that we need to consume in order to rectify that and fix our flaws. You can't see listeners, but I'm doing bunny rabbit ears (laughs) around the word flaws, that actually it primes us for a a perfectionist mindset and that that's having a really devastating impact, particularly on young people. I don't know how much you're able to say about this because obviously it doesn't start until Thursday. Thursday, yeah. But... Can you say anything about what the outcome was or, or mm. what you thought? Do we all need to just strip off and run <laughs> around and it's going to be fine? Well, what I can say is that this show is quite unique, I think, in that it doesn't ask anybody to change anything about themselves apart from their perspective. And I think that's what's really interesting about the evolution of body confidence programming because we've gone from the era of kind of Trini and Susanna who were like wear a corset <laughs> you, need, you, know, you, need, you need to flatter your figure kind of thing to Gok who you know was a revolutionary mm-hmm. of his time but that was still very much like you know put a pair of heels on and stuff was required this it doesn't ask anyone to buy anything doesn't ask anyone to lose weight it's just change your mindset and and be contented with the body that you have I don't think any program's ever done that before. Is it kind of looking at it as opposed to aiming for some sort of ideal, but getting us more to think it's just a body? Yeah, and to be neutral, because body positivity was actually a a movement that was started by fat women of colour. And what they were saying was, "I, I don't necessarily need you to find me attractive. That's not what this is about. I just want neutrality. I just want to be not oppressed, not prejudiced against, you know, not to have the same opportunities as anyone else. And that's quite a nice place to be, actually, to just go... You know, I don't have to love everything about myself. I don't need you to love everything about me either. Chidira Egeru, who mm. the, the slum flower, yeah, she calls the body the the spirit sack. I quite like that. It's just what I'm carrying my spirit around in. So, Mental Health Awareness Week is coming up, and mm. I imagine you will be doing some work. 
stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you want to tell <laughs> us about the, the stuff? <laughs> well, the, first of all, it will be a year since I launched Where's Your Head At, um, which is a campaign to change the law so that we have mental health first aiders in workplaces in the same way as we have medical first aiders. So I will be doing something. I'm not quite sure what yet, but to mark the occasion, you know, looking at the progress we've made. How is it going? Well, I met the Downing Street cat. Oh, Larry? Yeah. Larry, so, someone needs to put Larry in charge. Stats. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, he was he was cool. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I think the problem is, is that, that there is this argument that the government use in relation to everything and it's a a real nonsense argument it sounds good when you first hear it and then you break it down you go that doesn't mean anything and i've seen them that doesn't sound like the government i know (laughs) Uh, i've seen them do it in relation to quite a few things where they say well we could do this but if we did this then the people who are doing more than this would feel that they were doing too much so they did they do it with mental health funding they're like oh we we won't ring fence mental health funding because people might want to spend more than that and and then it will become a ceiling even though the evidence shows that people are actually sp- spending far less than the amount of funding yeah. they get for. Um, doesn't make sense, does it? No, it makes no sense at all. So with, so with Where's Your Head At, they, they were like, well, there's lots of employers who are doing more than just mental health first aid, so it might become a floor. They're obsessed with ceilings and floors, mm. the, the government. So I've got to somehow circumnavigate that to get to the next stage. Any, any ideas of what you're going to do? Uh, coup. A coup, yes. yeah, revolution, yeah. maybe. Sign us up. Yeah. Let's get Larry in charge. <laughs> Military coups. <Yeah. laughs> when is Mental Health Awareness Week? The thirteenth to the seventeenth of May. So, Natasha, the Naked Beach starts mm. on Channel Four at eight pm on Thursday, April the eleventh, it and does. it's on weekly for five weeks. Five weeks. Mm. So, you can watch it. Do you have to be fully nude while you're watching it? That's optional. Okay. Um, but I would encourage people. So, again, in Dr. Keon's research, it shows that if you spend time alone with your naked body, particularly in front of a mirror, oh God. It, it gets, it's, you do that for about a minute. But it, a lot of Dr. Keon's research is about desensitization. So, it's like if you do it for five minutes, you can't be a, a, in a state of high anxiety for five minutes. So, eventually, you, your brain will just go. Cool. You know what? When we first started making this podcast, we all said that listening back to your own voice, like that's something that mm-hmm. makes people generally feel quite uncomfortable because it doesn't sound like what you hear. Yeah. But the more you do it, the more you sort of find peace with that. But initially you're like, oh, God, it's the worst thing ever. I still have to vomit every time I start editing. Still hate it. Really? really? Yeah. I do do that naked in front of a mirror, though. That's how I edit. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, where can we find you on the internet to talk to you about being naked in front of a mirror or indeed find out what you're up to for Mental Health Awareness Week? Uh, My website is natashadevan.com and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Natasha Devon. Again, you can't see, but I just did a sort of interpretive dance underscore, didn't I, across the desk? Yeah, I liked it. Natasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we administer a people's elbow to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. And, of course, I'm referring to the historic victory of Becky Lynch in the first ever all-female main event at WWE's WrestleMania 35 on Sunday. 
Lynch, originally from Limerick, can now lay claim to both the Raw and SmackDown titles, having beat Ronda Rousey, who you've probably heard of, and Charlotte Flair, who you might not have heard of unless you are, like, well into wrestling. Ahead of the match, Lynch tweeted, Today is the day The Man, which I believe is her wrestling name, and I'm frankly slightly confused by it, finally comes around to collect. Today is the day you and me change how this business works, thinks and progresses. I, full stop, am, full stop, ready, full stop for, full stop this, full stop day. Probably another full stop, I don't know. And indeed she was. I remember watching wrestling with my brothers as a kid and the women's were very much second-class citizens and I'm talking about macho man Randy Savage and his sidekick Miss Elizabeth, as he used to say. They were actually married, apparently, which has blown my mind. And Sapphire, the manager, again, of Dusty Rhodes and it took some Googling to find her name. So this is a far cry from the days when models were hired to just grapple with each other in their pants. So let's not fuck around here. None of the headline acts are exactly hard on the eye, but both Lynch and Flair have been wrestling from a young age. Rousey is a former judoka and even bagged a bronze medal in the Beijing Olympics. So this is big news, and though women's wrestling has been growing in popularity for a while now... It's a bold move by WWE, and best of all, in further If You Book Them They Will Come news, the event apparently broke the record at New Jersey's MetLife Stadium for the highest-grossing entertainment event, as well as an attendance record with a sold-out crowd of 82,265. So, more sport over the weekend, and Hannah will no doubt be delighted by the double Cambridge victory in the boat race on Sunday. The men's team included double Olympic champion James Cracknell, and that's all I have to say about that. Seems fair, right? Anyway, more importantly, the women. The Cambridge team finished in 18 minutes and 47 seconds, which isn't far off the record, just 15 seconds slower, in fact. Cambridge led pretty much from the start, moving a length ahead in less than four minutes, and it is their 44th victory to Oxford's 30 victories. So though the women's boat race has been televised for the last five years, alongside the men, or rather this was the fifth year it's been televised, Lizzie Polgreen, part of the Oxford crew, reminded us how far the sport's come in her interview after the race. Polgreen was also part of the losing crew in 2011, and as BBC reporter Jason Mohammed began, the hardest interview to do, I know. She commented, well, no one bothered to interview us in 2011. Bit of Britwatch news in the tennis, as world number 253... Nathan Baines has formally requested to switch her playing nationality from Australian to British. She would qualify for that as she was born in Leeds and emigrated to Brisbane age eight. So holds dual citizenship. It's an interesting move because Baines initially wanted to represent GB but eventually chose not to because she said the Lawn Tennis Association had shown little interest in her development. So she's now 21 and was considered a promising talent back in the day when she switched and that was a bit of a blow to the GB team. Were she currently British in her playing nationality, she would be number six right now as she has won the Mujura Grand International in March. So keep your eyes peeled for more news on that as it happens. That's all from me this week and I'll be back again next week with more women's sport. But in the meantime, if you want to tweet me, or Instagram me, I am respectively at InspiraGen and at Jen double N off double F. Give me a shout if you want to tell me your thoughts on women's sport, anything you'd like to hear more about, get in touch. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought... 
as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? This week we watched, and I say week because I think we all did actually watch it, we watched the incredibly earnest Gattaca, which... I think earnest is a very generous adjective. Which is 1997, starring Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, who I believe was his wife at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't guess it from any chemistry in the film. No. Jude Law, who I find entirely terrifying. Alan Arkin, who's brilliant. Gore Vidal and Ernest Borgnine. Come on now. One of my favourite actors ever. So when are we? We're in the not-too-distant future. Clever that, isn't it? Yeah, which I think possibly about now. If this was made in 1997, the not-too-distant future would be approximately now, would it? The distant future... The year 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to know what's happening in this world? Sure. Sure. Basically what's happening is genetic engineering. There are two kinds of people. The first one, love babies, fuck babies, whatever you want to call them. Babies that are actually born the good old-fashioned way. God babies. God babies. They do actually call them God babies in this, don't they? Conceived in the back of a car like every baby should be. (laughs) Yeah. But also babies that have their parents have gone along and decided to choose. They would like... Them to be tall, strong, maybe have a big cock. That's something we'll come back to. Intelligent and most importantly, to weed out any diseases that they might have. So the point being, when a baby's born, you have a rough idea of when it's actually going to die. Now, into this world is born the character played by Ethan Hawke, Vincent. He is a love baby, fuck baby, God God baby. baby. Back of the car baby. (laughs) (laughs) He wants to go into space, but unfortunately he has a number of inbuilt health conditions which would prevent him going into space. So he decides he wants to go and work for this company called Gattaca and he basically hires... Or borrows or pays for. He works there as a cleaner, I think it's key to mention that. He does. Uh, He borrows the identity of a test tube baby, or what what are we calling them? Devil babies, not fuck babies, not love babies. Front front of the car babies. babies. Yeah. But they're the special ones. (laughs) (laughs) On the bonnet babies, that's what we're calling them. (laughs) Who has all of the. Whatever you would he's call got it, killer genes. He he's does. Got he's got all the genes. They're smashing that would get him into Gattaca. But unfortunately, was involved in an accident. Maybe not an accident, and is now in a wheelchair. There's also a woman just floating around, so someone can fuck her. She's played by Uma Thurman. She probably does have a name, but it hasn't even stuck in my brain. Irene. Mm. Well done for noticing. Same as my grandma. Um, so that's the basic setup. He does have a brother as well, who is. Front of the bonnet baby. He he definitely is. He was came full out of the glove compartment, fully formed. <laughs> Never find out how big his cock is, though. No, we don't. Massive, I imagine. And well, they parents obviously... aren't giving their kids massive cocks. If that is a choice, imagine if you knew that it was a choice <laughs> and the, your parents had designed you to the last dotting of the I and crossing of the T and they've given you a cocktail sausage. Now, an interesting point here is if everyone's got a big cock, what is a big cock? 
That is an interesting point, Jen. It's, I mean, it's all not a of big this... cock anymore, is it? Because everyone's got one. It's average. Yeah, all of this is more interesting than the film, <laughs> if I'm well. honest. Are we nearly where the film is at yet? Are we nearly there yet? I don't know. I mean, genetic engineering has moved on, obviously. I think it's really interesting to say that despite the fact that this film is categorically awful, it actually caused a massive stir when it came out. Not at the box office at all. But amongst scientists, like in 1997, review of the film by Nature Genetics said that Gattaca is the film that all geneticists should see. So it was seen as being like a fairly accurate prediction of where we were heading if we went down that route. Either that or being a geneticist is just so exciting that they need to have a little sleep and Gattaca would do that to anyone. Yeah. So are we nearly there yet in terms of technology? I don't actually... I mean, Not everyone's got a massive cock yet. <laughs> no. But it's eugenics, basically. So they stopped going down that avenue for I mean, for we've reasons. been there, done that, innit? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess technology must exist to an extent. It's interesting because, I mean, there is obviously no, no advanced technology. The, the advanced technology must exist because they go to, like, they're going off to the, the moons of Saturn in it and stuff. So obviously they're further along in the space program. Still got old-fashioned keyboards. No, they're harder. They're harder than an average keyboard because you can use it as a murder weapon, stove in someone's head, and there'll be goo on your keyboard, but not a letter will have pinged off. There's no, no dents in the plastic. <laughs> no, definitely. Oh, it's really sticking, though. <laughs> Titanium. I, I, I've keyboard. got to say, like, obviously, he's pretending to be the character played by the terrifying Jude Law. He must take longer to get ready than, like, 95% of people. He has to get up and, like, scrub every single bit of dead skin off him and all his hair. And he has to strap some piss to his leg every morning. I couldn't exist in this universe. I I really couldn't. I mean, I don't even own a hairbrush, so I just leave hair absolutely everywhere. But, I mean, you know that bit where they're going through his keyboard to find what's in his keyboard? They're looking for dead skin cells. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. What do you think is in your keyboard? Biscuits. literally would hate to... Biscuits and half a cat. Biscuits, cat fur, bits of tobacco... Anything that I've just gone, I just push it down there. I can't get it. Eyelashes get in there. Yeah, eyelashes. Eyelashes. They can bring you down, Jen. Um, On a technology front, what's happening with the cars? Are they airbound? No, the cars, like almost everything else. I think cars and and fashion. We could probably wrap up in one thing here. Is that? I mean, I wonder whether this film's made by Scientologists because the future looks like the 1950s. Future retro, retro future. I mean. Alan Arkin is a proper... He looks dressed like a gumshoe, isn't he? And they're yeah. all driving proper sort of 1950s aesthetic-looking cars. It looks like a world Don Draper would exist in. Yeah. The nod to technology is they don't have licence plates anymore. They've just got some sort of chip, like an errant pet. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about women? There's one in here. Yeah, there? and yeah. the woman. Um, there's two. Well, there's his mum as well, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Oh, also the delivery room nurse, Maya Rudolph. Fun fact. Really? I was really confused by both the dad and the brother. Sorry, this is not on the subject of women. The dad sort of looked like budget Robert De Niro. The brother, That's um, Elias Cotius. But he always Robert plays really seedy fuckers. The brother looks like Frank Sabotka's son. Oh, like you leprechaun. Nicky? Yeah. Oh, God, what's he Pablo called? Pablo Schreiber. 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 I suppose he could be a Schreiber. There's a lot of them about. Mm. He isn't. Okay. He's a Lauren Dean. Well, I mean, this is an interesting point because we've all failed to recognise people in this. And the odd thing about this film is that in the future, everyone goes face blind. Yes. Like, there are points in it in which, like, for example, Ernest Borgnine knows the character of Vincent in both his incarnations and fails to 
spot them apart because he's put a pair of glasses on. Despite the fact that they look really quite different. Yeah. Nobody can tell the difference between Jude Law and Ethan Hawke, despite the fact, yeah, that they look really different. Also, he doesn't recognise, and spoiler alert, he doesn't recognise his own brother mm. for a long way through the film, even though... You'd think they would. They were there. They were together till they were teenagers. The, the glasses thing is brilliant. There was a bit where Ethan Hawke's Vincent is about to leave the house and Jude Law kind of shakes his head and he's like, what, what? And it's because he's still got his glasses on and it, it, he literally, that's all he does. He takes his glasses off and I'll he's show a you new character. How easy it is. Fucking hell, Who Jane the fuck's gone? that? Yeah, <laughs> it's freaky. For the benefit of oh, the tape. I mean, I would imagine that, that in this world, like the supreme entertainment is just people holding a, a, like a tea towel across their face and pulling it down and pulling it up and everyone going, where have they gone? Oh my uh, God, where have they gone? Has he gone into space? Oh no, there he is. I was watching this with a pal and at one point I went, oh, I don't think I really understand DNA, but I don't think the film really <laughs> understands DNA either. No. He's careless. He, he leaves DNA in the woman. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Who's had him screened? I mean, I said it's like very elaborate Tinder. She finds a hair in a comb, gets it screened, and goes, oh, this one might be for me. It's interesting because where they go to have it screened as well, it's, it's like it's supposed to be secret. I don't know what, but basically it's almost like a glory hole. They have to stick this thing through. I do love in the future when you know it's the future because you receive all information in a tube. Yeah. <laughs> Although she does also receive quite a lot of it in an old bubble gem printout. She has like half a half an encyclopedia's worth of paper. It's like things in um, Sainsbury's when they put the money in the chute. Yeah, or in banks. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think do still strike me as quite futuristic yeah. if I'm honest the whole of the Gassica future of the valids as opposed to the invalids or the degenerates which is one of the worst <laughs> jokes I've ever heard oh, in fact I don't even think it's, it's a joke because this film's too it? it's just bad pronunciation yeah. <laughs> the future is very, the not too distant future is very white and male it is so fairly prescient <laughs> uh, politics I don't know that there is any politics in it particularly, is there, apart from the politics of the social politics. And I think the point that they're trying to make is that working class kids have a hard life because rich kids have contacts and get into stuff. I think that's the message of the film, basically. Really? I think that's generous. <laughs> and I think, well, because they, they, they do hammer home that point, that some people are born with a disadvantage. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. basically what they're saying. In this. Some people are unfairly disadvantaged by nothing, no matter how talented they are. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that anyone with a heart condition shouldn't be sent into space, regardless of whether or not, or whether they were a love baby, a fuck baby, a god baby, or whatever. They shouldn't be, you couldn't go into space with a heart condition. He's on that running machine for 20 minutes and it nearly kills him. Yeah. But luckily, there's no one in the locker room. (laughs) (laughs) But the interesting thing about it is that they do try and cover the other side a little bit, and they do try and say, or I mean, they say it quite briefly, that, that perfection itself is a burden, and that's the role that the character of Jude Law is supposed to play. In, the, in fact, it transpires he hasn't had an accident, that he came second. He got a silver medal and then he didn't know how to cope with it. So basically he threw himself in front of a car and he ended up disabled. OK, so that's the point they're trying to make. But the rest of it can frankly fuck off with what the attitude towards the idea that he's in a wheelchair. Technology has moved on to a degree that you can go to space, right? But they haven't invented a fucking stairlift yet. He actually has to drag himself up the stairs, right? He's in a, a manual wheelchair, like, the idea that, that it presents is that his life is so shit as a disabled person 
that what he needs to do at the end of it to make everything more bearable is take his own life in an incredibly gruesome fashion because that is better than living in a wheelchair. And I think that is the worst fucking message any film can send out, to be honest. That's a great take home, is it? It's not. And also, they've managed to put people in space and they can do that operation on Ethan Hawke's Vincent to make him two inches taller. But they can't fix his back. But they can't fix his back. Also, they actually had stair lifts in 1997. Exactly. (laughs) And this guy stays at home all day. You'd imagine TV's full of infomercials. So I think in the politics of trying to be nice or trying to have the politics of, hey, life's harder for some people, it actually shits on a load of people that life's way harder for than everybody else. Does it have a Cassandra moment? What is the lesson we should have learned or should be learning from Gattaca? I suppose the fundamental premise, the premise that life is shit if you don't have the same opportunities as people who come from more money, which theoretically this is. Obviously, there is a screening process here and it's based on you can't join a certain thing, you can't do a certain thing unless you've got like the points, the genetic points to get there which is quite interesting. And I suppose I saw Caroline Criada Perez at a talk at the weekend, and she was talking about algorithms and how algorithms basically rush through CVs now. Wow. Mm. And, That's scary. Yeah. And That's interesting. keywords flush out certain people from the system. So they're, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily particularly new. I haven't applied for a job in 10 years, I don't think, actually, but... Uh, like actually filled in an application for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get rejected from places and I just knew that that was a, a, a an automatic reject thing that nobody had even read my yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't belong at The Guardian. Anyway, so Stephen used to say to me, you might as well write to fucking Father Christmas <laughs> and apply for a job <laughs> at The Guardian. But So I think that, that actually, oddly, maybe that's its Cassandra moment, the idea that ideally in a world you would get to a point where we'd be moving closer together and that everyone would have the same opportunities. And perhaps in 2019, or where we are now, it's even worse than it was when this film was made in 1997, actually, for equality of opportunity for people. I think How point... are we doing on cock size? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even mentioned why this, why we keep talking about cock size. There's a, point in which, there's a point in which he has to piss in front of a doctor, and I can't work out how that happens. And the doctor actually comments that he wishes his parents had picked a cock size. Maybe that's the lesson. Only fuck babies get a decent-sized cock. I think the point is we all have value unless we're disabled in which case we might as well just burn ourselves <laughs> alive which is not a great point she's but... wearing glasses so it must be Jen saying this <laughs> yeah. I think it is a, um, a past Cassandra moment of eugenics is bad that's what I, I took that from it don't eugenics just say no kids. yeah just say yeah. no but we did we, I think we all basically knew that anyway didn't yeah. we yeah can I tell you my favourite bit of it? Yes, you certainly can. Which I actually told you earlier. But my favourite bit of it is when he has to give a blood sample and obviously he doesn't have the blood he's claiming to have. So in order to do this, he has to carry a vial of blood in his hand, sort of like that, which you can't see on a podcast, so this isn't ideal, as if you are carrying a tampon to the toilet in an office and you don't want your male colleagues to know. About periods About periods. Not because you're an idiot, but because it's societally unacceptable. And then he, like, sort of throws it on the floor. That's my favourite bit of it, because I kind of think, like, with technology like that, is that really the best you can do? It's like, just sort of cup it about your wrist. I also don't understand why the fine figure of a man that is Ernest Borgnine wasn't 
like a genetically how how could he possibly exist without some sort of genetic engineering i don't even know who that is is that the doctor no ernest borgnine who is it you don't know who ernest borgnine is oh my word who does he play in the film I mean, when I say the five-figure man, I don't mean like Ernest Borgnine's hot. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. No. He is, he is the copper? No, he is the guy who runs the cleaning thing. I've instantly forgotten. The guy who goes, don't clean it too well. You won't want to see what's on the other side. And he goes, I've got to clean it so you recognise my face when I'm on the other side. It's his boss when he's a cleaner. Well, I must have been making my dinner have you never? Happened. Have you never seen The Wild Bunch? Shane, that's not dystopia, because we'd be on that right now. <laughs> How many Arnies are you giving it? Well, can we remember what an Arnie was worth? What is the, what is the value? <laughs> what is of, the value of an Arnie? Is it? So the value of, of an Arnie, Arnie is twofold. So <laughs> the, the Arnie has a twofold value. One, is it a good film? Like, is it entertaining? And two, is it prescient? Okay. So it's got both... Arnie, action hero, and Arnie, governor of California. <laughs> okay. Well, in terms of Arnie, governor, of, Arnie, action hero, like, is it a fun film to watch? Is oh, it a no. good film? Yeah, now let's get him one Arnie. One Arnie. It's so, so dull. And because they're in this sort of, everyone's genetically perfect, and, like, you know who everyone is, apparently, because of their genes, they don't have... Emotions, but watching an emotionless film is the dullest experience. They don't appear to have hobbies or anything, or chemistry. There's or... no joy in it at all. There's no there? music. There's no. There is, there is a huge score. It's no, no, no. Really... But I mean, there's no. Nobody's nobody's playing music in their car. It's like nobody. There doesn't seem to be pop culture. Doesn't they go seem to, to exist. A piano recital, yeah. and the guy's got twelve fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Official number. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so, so dull. It's laughable. I was entertained by how dull it was. Yeah. I wasn't, and yet I've enjoyed this discussion about it far more than I did the film. <laughs> In terms of, you know, is it accurate representation of the future, I'm, I'm going to say two Arnies. So an, an average of one and a half Arnies? One and a half Arnies. What are we watching next week? Next week I thought we might watch... Um, something better yeah yeah, anything, almost something anything fun. something fun <laughs> absolutely something fun so I thought we might watch Soylent Green okay I haven't seen that no me either have you not no okay it's Charlton Heston are the monkeys no standard issue for all women